There's no I in team, but there is one in Indeed. And that's the hiring platform that you need to build yours. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because Indeed does the hard work for you. They show you the candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post so you can hire faster. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWireSports. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash BlueWireSports. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWireSports. And support the show by saying that you heard it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWireSports. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. back everybody to another episode of benched with bubba episode 283 gonna talk some more fantasy baseball as you know we might be getting closer to some sort of season being planned out which is great because that's what we want is some real baseball in our life kbo is great it's fun it gives us a little fix but we want some major league baseball to play some fantasy baseball in order to talk about that tonight first time guest to the show you can find him on twitter at cory 5 ought cory how we doing man I'm doing great, Bubba. Thanks so much for having me on here. How are you doing? I am doing great. Um, people that listen to the show enough know one of my biggest passions outside of baseball, obviously, is playing golf. And golf courses opened about four days ago. So uh, it, I got to go. I actually played nine holes before we're starting this. So I feel like a brand new <laughs> man right now. It's, uh, it, is, it is great to be able to get some fresh air and uh, have a little fun. So I am doing great. Absolutely. Like that. that's, that's awesome. Um, and I actually just received great word from our uh, local sporting community here in Laramie, Wyoming, that our co-ed softball and competitive softball will be starting up on June 8th. So luckily, I'll I'm actually, so you know, I'll have something to do this summer. Uh, I was really, uh, I, I was really not looking forward to just sitting around and not having baseball. And so it looks like we might have baseball. I'm going to get to play softball, a lot of stuff going on. So it's going to be, should be, you know, things should start to turn out a little bit better here for, for the rest of the country. That is awesome. I'm so jealous because uh, I'm on the I'm, I'm in a, I live in a small town, so I, I'm on Me a too. lot of board. I'm on a lot of boards around here and um, I'm on the softball board. That's one our, our our King City Adult Softball League. I'm on the board. And uh, right before this all happened, we spent all offseason, all winter. Re, we ripped out the grass, redid all the outfield level, the infield brought in new dirt. We were going to start the season um, the second week in April. And then, of course, this happened. So we've been driving by staring at a brand new softball field, just kind of sitting there. And we have no California. The, the bad part about California is 
they're going to probably be one of the last ones to open up. They're taking the softest approach to this thing. I try, I'm keeping politics out of all of this because I mm-hmm. want uh, everyone to stay safe. But it's a little frustrating at times. So I, I am extremely jealous that you're, <laughs> you're getting to play softball because if I can't, uh, if, if we can't really watch baseball, the next best thing is playing baseball. So I'm with you there. That's that'll be a ton of fun. And then you said you're in Laramie, and I, I know right before we uh, we've talked like the last few days. You just finished grad school. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, what are you? Uh, what did you graduate in? Yeah, so finishing up graduate school, defended my thesis about a week and a half ago. Um, so I got an MA in geography. Um, my my uh, my degree leading up to this was a BS in physical geography and natural resource conservation. So I do all earth science work and natural resource conservation work. And now I actually just um, you know I'm graduating. I just got. Um, uh, you know, my first permanent full-time job with, you know, the benefits, all the bells and whistles um, as a GIS analyst for a geoengineering nice. and subsurface uh, structural construction company here in Laramie. So it looks like I'm going to be here in this this small town for a, a, a very long time. Well, congratulations. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank, that is, Thank that's you. outstanding. I have a, a good friend from college that did um, kind of not quite what you're doing, but he's in charge of a bunch of the rangelands in California, the private areas. Through the University of California Davis, they left him in charge of it somehow. If, if people knew him in college, you would have been shocked by this. But uh, <laughs> he, he got the gig because he you know got the degree, and you know people change once in a while. So uh, it was uh, awesome. He does a lot of a lot of those type of deals. It's similar major to what you had. Didn't go to grad school. I don't think he would have made it that far. But, <laughs> yeah, it's, um, that's that's important. That's important work. So that's yes. great. I commend him for that. Yeah. So it's pretty cool stuff there. But uh, that's a little bit of get to know Corey. I recommend <laughs> people follow him on Twitter. I, I literally I sit here and talk the whole time, but I want to get to some baseball <laughs> today. Um, and we got some news, which I, I really love that we have news. Like I mentioned beforehand, you know, there's the Trevor Plouffe tweets, and I'm a believer in Trevor Plouffe tweets because they sound realistic to the kind of timeline we've heard. Overall, obviously, not everything's set in stone, but it kind of falls in line. And then he still has tons of friends in the game, like a ton of them. And they're all sitting there talking to him. I don't. I find it hard to believe he'd be willing to just throw this out there and then just keep the, the long con going. But um, you never know. I, I'm just very optimistic. I, I love anything with hope. Do you believe that maybe we're getting closer to something happening? Yeah, I think we really are. Um, and, yeah, he his last tweet, I believe, I saw he put out was that he – has had text conversations with uh, players from six different major league organizations saying that the dates that MLB is discussing um, for returning baseball, potentially first week of July, are very realistic and that they have been told to to uh, start preparing for the season right now. So I think that's a very good sign, um, not just from Trevor, but from from a couple other people around the, the industry as well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And, and there's rumors out there that, the, the there should be pr- proposals being put to the uh, from the owners to the players in the next couple of days or maybe next week. So I really think we're going to have spring training coming up in June. Sometime early July, we'll have some games, 80 to 100 games, and a little sense of normalcy. It's going to go a long, long way. So I'm looking forward to that in a big way. And like I said, is we're getting news now because I think it is a realistic thing is these guys have been training to, to kind of keep loose and keep ready and ramp up and heal from injuries. And, you know, when we drafted back in – you know, February and March, there was kind of question marks on certain players. Now we're getting some healthiness. And one of them is Alex Verdugo, one of the big pieces that went to Boston in the Mookie Betts trade. And he had the massive back issue. And there was really concerns of, will he be ready? And he wouldn't have been, obviously. But now he's getting healthy and says he's pretty much 100%. And that means he might be good to go. Does that change your outlook on a guy like Alex Verdugo 
going into a draft? Would you be more inclined to grab him? Or are you still kind of staying away from him? What's your thoughts on Verdugo? I'd probably be slightly more inclined uh, to take him. I mean, I was taking him before the injury. I mean, last season, um, this season, I, I, I didn't, you know, the injury didn't really deter me too much, but though it is a back injury, so that is somewhat worrisome. And you have to take these reports from players themselves with a grain of salt. Um, because just because you can't feel the injury anymore doesn't mean that it isn't still there. Um, and we're probably going to return to a very similar conversation like this with with Aaron Judge coming up soon. Um, but you have to take into consideration that he's just been he's been practicing at his pace. He's been loosening up. He's been recovering. Um, but when he has to return to full bore game action, like just like that snap of the fingers season, snap of the fingers season is here. Um, you know, their bodies are immediately being subjected to a whole nother level of explosiveness and, and athletic activity and, and stretching those muscles back out in contrast to just training and practicing, you know, in the facilities at your own pace. So um, it is a good sign. I'm happy to hear that from Alex, um, but we have to take it with a grain of salt. And, uh, you know, hopefully he, he does return to form. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. And there's a couple of things I want to hit on that you said there is he's getting to ramp up at his speed. And I think that's if we're going to take anything away from not having baseball right now, you know, if we would have been in season, rehab might have been a lot quicker. Like, hey, you got to get back. You got to make this work. Let's go. Now, you know, like you said, back issues. I, I've dealt with back issues a lot of people have. And they're no joke. And like you said, is they can come back at a moment's notice, one minor little thing. And next thing you know, you're down and out again for quite some time. They're a very fickle beast. And um it, he hadn't been able to do on his own time and take his time until he feels comfortable to ramp it up is very important. But the other thing you mentioned there is these guys are going to have to ramp it up real quickly once things get going. And that's been a concern of many people's that I've heard, like especially when it comes to pitchers and even guys coming back from injuries. How uh, how much do you going to factor that in? Say we start getting the draft again in another month and we have a season on our hands. Are you going to really – take a lot of concern in potential re-injuries or a shortened season on pitchers getting injured? How are you approaching that in the situation? Yeah, you definitely have to be concerned. And it's really the guys with perennial, you know, issues um, that, that I'm somewhat staying away from and that I have stayed away from in the past and just within a shortened season. Um, I mean, in a, in a normal length season, they have that time to go on the IL and, you know, recover and come back and ramp back up and, you know, have that time, get back up to speed and produce at, at an elite level. And they're simply not going to have that time. Like it's just the, the shortened timeline affects a lot of different things. You know, the, the hottest teams probably are going to end up with the best records, all of that good stuff. And um, pitchers, you know, pitchers that have uh, prior injuries that have been nagging them, um, they do have this extended time now to to somewhat recover at their own pace like you were just saying um but i mean uh, we just said once you you get subjected you get thrown right back in to that that high intensity environment and one little tweak um that you're not that they aren't prepared for physically and they're out for the rest of the season so so guys that have perennial injuries um you know that suffer from little tweak injuries like stuff that that keeps guys out on the you know the il 10 10 day il for you know, a couple times a year, those are the type of guys that that I'm going to try to stay away from and stay consistent with with uh, healthier guys. No, it makes a lot of sense for sure. Uh, right now, Verdugo, since April 1st in NFBC, is going around pick 228. 
uh, in online drafts, over 61 drafts. Projected hit seventh for the Red Sox unless Benintendi struggles. Uh, guys going ahead of him like Shinsu Chu, McCutcheon, Jock Peterson, Yasiel Puig. Would you take Verdugo any, over anybody like that, or do you think 228 is probably a pretty good spot for him? Yeah, it's a fairly good spot, and I'm not sure how much he has changed, how much his ADP has changed. And I know uh, uh, you and Toby just just did those couple of episodes about ADP changers, risers and fallers, um, you know, over this this uh, extended time off. Um, and I did not look into where Verdugo has if he's either fell or or risen. Do you do you have any insight oh, I on can, that? I I can tell you right now. He has jumped uh, about 11 spots since March. Just in the month of April alone, he jumped about 11 spots. Okay, yeah. I mean, that sounds about right. And um, the injury, I'd be, I'd be interested to see where he his ADP is um, within the last couple of weeks now. Um, but, you know, with these reports, him saying he's 100%, you could almost expect that to, to just kind of remain where it is right now. And I think, I think he's a good value if he's going to be healthy. Um, he's going to make his way up into that leadoff spot. I don't, you know, I, I like Benintendi, but I don't really care, you know, uh, how much positivity people pour into to Benintendi. I think Verdugo is a more raw player. He's going to uh, provide a better on-base percentage, and he's just a better pure contact hitter, so he deserves a chance to to be atop that lineup. Yeah, I'm with you. He's not, he's not going to be a, big, a major power source, but decent average mm-hmm. on-base percentage, score some runs. He'd be a really good guy towards the top of the order. Uh, you mentioned kind of those knick-knack uh, nagging injuries. Let's jump ahead for a second and talk Aaron Judge because uh, that pretty much sums up Aaron Judge, Giancarlo Stanton, the big Yankee boppers. That's just what they do. They seem to just get banged up time and time again. And I've, I've written about Judge. Many people have. If he had played a full season, his numbers are off the chart. His hard hit rates, his X stats, anything you want to point to is ridiculous. His ISO, everything. The guy just can't stay on the field. That's just the problem. Um, right now, like like a couple weeks ago when I was talking about Judge, it appeared he was like rocking and rolling, ready to go. And now Aaron Boone comes out and says he needs to go in for another CT scan here in the next week or two. Then they'll reevaluate it. They say he's healing up nicely. But, you know, with, with the rib injuries, it's all cartilage based on everything. There's nearly no timetable here. He has moved up ADP quite a bit. Um, I know me personally, I'm just going to stay away from Aaron Judge. But um, he could be worth a big gamble. What's your thoughts on Aaron Judge right now? Are you willing to take that gamble? Nope. Nope, and never have <laughs> been. <laughs> um, Judge is always just too high of a price for me, and he's turning into a glass statue. And we just see that happen a lot with guys you know, of that size. But the main problem for me is the fact that he was healing in the offseason and he felt a hundred percent, you know, maybe not a hundred percent, but he felt pretty good to go when it came to spring training in January. And so kind of jumping back to what I said about Verdugo, you know, just because you don't feel the injury doesn't mean it's not still there. Um, well, same thing, you know, it, this, this became a reality, a nightmare, unfortunately for judge where, you know, the injury first came last September, um, fractured top right rib when he dove in the outfield. And what some people don't know is that he also suffered a collapsed lung on that play too. So he actually had, you know, he had a complex series of issues going on um, where he just needed to sit out and just not touch a baseball, not run, do anything for a long time. And I think that's what he did. And then he came back in January. And then, like you said, all of a sudden that that pain came back. 
um, as soon as he started ramping his activity back up. And that's a huge, that's an issue for me. Um, there's, there's going to be underlying issues with judge for uh, indefinitely. Um, in my opinion, just given his, his physical stature, it's going to, it's going to, he's going to have to completely sit himself out of any sort of activity to be able to fully recover from this type of injury. And I've just, yeah, I, I, I've stayed away from him. Um, won't touch him with a thousand foot pole. So I, I'm curious to hear what, what you have to say on him. Um, but like talk, uh, Mike Talkman, I think, you know, he's the immediate replacement um, for judge. And I, I'll gladly, you know, I've taken Talkman in numerous draft this, drafts this this year. And, uh, you know, I'll gladly take that value over judge. I like the Talkman call quite a bit. I, I think that's a big one. We saw how good he can be. Another guy with crazy good power, plays decent defense too. Uh, I'm with you on judge. Judge and Stanton. Stanton, I was kind of buying in on this last year because his injuries were a little, like, I don't know. They're not nearly quite to judges, but they're starting to get there. Like, Stanton got hit in the face with a baseball. He's had a couple of real goofy injuries, but um, they're both concerning. Like, these just big, bulky guys that they, I don't know if they don't have flexibility anymore or what's going on, but they're just not the same players. So it's a little, little tough to uh, go after either one of them. So I won't be buying into them. I think I like the Talkman call a bit. Uh, before, you know, if, if the season was going to start on time, Miguel Andahar was climbing up ADPs. He's falling like a box of rocks right now because, you know, Judge and Stanton are supposed to be back, so people are not drafting an Andahar. So Talkman, Andahar could be quite interesting. Aaron Hicks might be back healthy now. Brett Gardner's still going to play. There's a lot of uh, mouths to feed in that Yankees outfield, so that's going to make it quite interesting. Uh, but I do like the Talkman calls for value alone. It's one of those things that, you take him towards the end of your draft. If he doesn't pan out, you drop him. If he does, yeah. it's a phenomenal pick. So we talk about it time and time again, your late picks, you don't plan on keeping anyways. You're churning and burning on the waiver wire. Talkman's a perfect late round pick for something like that. So I like that a lot. Exactly. Yeah. And if Judge is out for an extended period of time, which he likely may be, um, Talkman is a full go in that situation, in my opinion, over Clint Frazier and even Andahar. But Andahar is a good stash, like you said, um, just in case Judge is out indefinitely for this season, too. Yeah, and it would be nice if one day they just like Clint Frazier, but somehow, I don't know what he did. <laughs> he, he made someone angry along the line. It just, it just isn't happening. <laughs> but um, let's talk about a guy that I am happy is healthy, and I'm happy that I can be back in on him. Seems like many people are as well because he's going back up ADPs. Currently, I pick 181, 182 is Willie Calhoun. Fractured jaw, hit in the face in spring training. It was nasty. Reports were he'd be out until, you know, late April, sometime in May. Well, he's back. He's hitting batting practice. He says he feels 100%. There should be nothing holding him back come the start of the season. And that, that ADP is going to keep climbing. 181, I think, is a, a crime for him. Projected to hit in the middle of that Rangers order. I'm all in on this price. Um, I'm curious – are you in on Calhoun? And if you are, how high would you go? Like he's 181 now. He's going to keep climbing. What price is too high for you? Yeah, go and get him now. Um, if you have the ability to go out and get Calhoun at that price right now, I'd get him. Like you just said, I mean, you highlighted just about every point that I was I was going to bring up. He's just, he's you know, he's going to hit, he's projected to hit in the middle of that Texas lineup. Um, he's just, you know, he's made tangible strides over the last couple of seasons. And now given that first, you know, full season of plate appearances, um, you know, um, just jumps everywhere. He increases barrel rate, um, X Wobicons up, hard hit rates up, K percentage is down. Like he's walking more than he ever has. So he has made tangible physical and statistical breakthroughs and, 
I mean, apparently, uh, you know, I, I understand that the that getting hit you know, in the face with the baseball like that can really scare some managers away. But in the long run, you know, that's not that's an injury that I am 100 percent willing to, you know, grab that guy at even higher uh, at an AB, ADP higher than he's going right now. So I'd probably take him like, you know, I would take him in the 160, 150, 160 range. I'm not sure who's all going right there as far as outfielders go. Um, but that's, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I'm with you. I'm, I'm all in, uh, on, on Willie Calhoun and I haven't, uh, you know, unfortunately haven't really been able to draft too much lately. It was all earlier, um, in, in the year. So I didn't end up with him in many places, but if I was drafting now and I saw him at, you know, he's going 180 or after, like you, <laughs> you have to grab that value. Yeah, I know I got him on a team or two. I, I'd love to go back and look. I need to go back and look and see what I got him at then because I know it's going to be higher than 181. Right. Uh, let's, have, let's have some fun here because you said 150. So at 151, Lourdes Gurriel Jr., would you have Gurriel or Calhoun? Yeah, and see that, ooh, that is a tough one. Um, both providing a little bit different value there. I you know what? I'd, I'd probably still go Calhoun. I mean, Guriel has made very, very good strides as well. A lot of people are are in on him um, as far as a, a massive breakout come come this season. But honestly, Calhoun seems a bit more established and tooled up, um, in my opinion. And so he's going to hit likely in the middle of that order where Guriel probably won't hit in the middle of the order of Toronto. Um, so I just I like Calhoun's situation uh, just a tad bit better. So yeah, I would I would actually go Calhoun there. Um, that's just me. I understand a lot of people would not do that, um, but I'm you know I'm all in as as you are. Yep, I'd Calhoun as well. Um, around the same time as Guriel Calhoun or Scott Kingery. And Kingery is a guy I'm a fan of. I would still Cal- still go Calhoun for the outfield. Yep, Calhoun. Okay, now this one's tricky because this is a guy I loved last year. His price has gone up, but it has fallen in the last month. I had this discussion with Toby on Monday night. If he continues to fall, I'm going to be in love with him again. Would you rather have Calhoun or Max Kepler at 150? Kepler at 150. Yeah. See, that's why it's a, it's a that 150 you threw out there is a pretty good kind of nameplate because the only outfielders going between them is you got uh, Lorenzo Kane at 174, JD Davis at 173, Kyle Tucker at 166, which could be interesting on a shortened year. Malik Smith at 164, and then Guriel Kingery Kepler. So that 150 pretty much falls in line with what I think is a pretty reasonable jump. But I wouldn't be shocked if he goes even higher. Like there's people that love him probably more than we do. So yeah, quite Kepler, Kepler, Tucker, and Guriel. Um, those are really the only three in that range that I would consider based on team construction earlier in the draft taking over Calhoun. Now um, Tucker was a guy that I wasn't really drafting in the early season stuff, assuming we're having a full year because with Dusty Baker, there are still question marks. If, if Tucker would get the full run, like I believe the talent of Kyle Tucker, I think he's gonna be great full season. I was nervous. I feel in the shortened season, it's pretty much his job unless he really stumbles. And if it's his job every day, you got a guy with 20, 20 potential or better, probably more speed than power. Like the power was crazy last year, but I think we might need to hone that back just a little bit, but still going to help you in pretty much five categories at this point in the draft. You mentioned Tucker is a guy in the consideration with Calhoun. What's your take on Tucker in a shortened season and, and overall? Yeah, if Tucker's going to get the plate appearances, he's uh, he's going to put up 
the value and he's going to put up the the numbers in my opinion um you know every time he's he's been given a chance at the major league level he's he's pretty much proved himself and the reason he's not at a full-time role is just somewhat of a log jam um in the outfield but um like you said tucker 2020 uh potential and even if this power somehow does stick to the level that that he he displayed last season then he's you know he's like he's 25 30 20 potential you know like he's um and that's why i've personally drafted him uh, in a couple of leagues uh, at the right value um uh, simply because the upside is through the roof and we just haven't been able you know we haven't had a full season to 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 see what he can do but like you said in a shortened season um, if he's getting the nod, then it's more of a sprint than it is a marathon. And I, I absolutely want that type of weapon, um, you know, anywhere in the lineup. Yeah. And, uh, I, I won't go any farther with this, but when I do have my bold predictions come out, I've given a few out on the show from time to time and I'll, I'll bunch them all together in a written form when it's time, but one, and these are two guys I love. Usually when I do a bold prediction, like I did, Fran Mill Reyes will outperform Aaron judge and fantasy value. That's because of our, and I said, and I also said he'll outperform Eloy Jimenez. And that's a little better because people know I don't like Judge, but I do like Eloy. So when it comes to Kyle Tucker, the ultimate Kyle Tucker season, what he can do at his best value, I'm going to go with Kyle Tucker in a bold prediction, outperform Starling Marte this year. And I love Starling Marte. So, but I think they both have that 2020, 3020 type upside. Depends on who shows up more. Just, just for fun. Just for fun. But yeah, um, that, that's a good one. Let's go to the Cleveland Indians. Uh, last episode, I talked to Corey Kluber's falling down ADP boards. Well, his, one of the big pieces in the Corey Kluber trade was Emmanuel Classe, big, hard-throwing, righty reliever, and he you know, hurt the back, was going to miss some time. Now he's busted for PEDs, going to miss 80 games, pretty much going to miss the season is the way you got to look at this one. Um, some had him as the kind of heir apparent to take over for hand. I've always been a Karinchik guy, some like Wittegren. What's your thoughts on that uh, Indians bullpen? Because Classe is pretty much out of the mix. Are you are you a believer in Brad Hand, or do you have another guy you're looking at? Yeah, and I'm somewhat a believer in um, you know what Brad Hand has been able to do over the last few seasons, and I, I'd still believe it. But I'm not. He's not someone that I've been drafting, and I, I think that he gets moved um, eventually. So I, I I've been more of a Karinchak guy myself. Um, I just. You know, I, I just love the potential that Karinchek poses, um, potential for weaker contact and just a better pitch mix overall. Um, Class A's cutter, you know, at 100 plus mile an hour, that is uh, that is something definitely um, to pay attention to. That's a that's a huge pitch. But, um, you know, the thing with Class A for me was that he just seemed to be um, I don't know, he seemed to be relying on the cutter too much like he really needs to develop um a second pitch i think the slider is i think that's obviously his second best pitch but um he needs to balance those out a little bit more if he's just gonna sit on the cutter um and just try to throw that uh you know 60 percent of the time or more whatever he throws it um then he's just i don't I don't see him really you know sticking in a closing role where Karinchak i think has an even higher potential for strikeout upside and, and closing ability in a high leverage situation like that where class a you you might have to worry about the walks um but yeah this is just unfortunate um you know i i didn't get a chance to look into the the drug that he 
he got suspended for or it, what it was even, you know, what it's even geared towards doing no, for the it's body. An anab- it's an anabolic steroid. Okay. Yeah. He wasn't, so, he wasn't even being sneaky. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So that's, <laughs> man, I, I don't know. I, uh, I, I don't really have much else to say on class A. It's just unfortunate uh, guys yep. wasting, you know, their talent like that. So. Yep. It sucks. It really, really does. Now let's go to another bullpen. The Cardinals bullpen has been interesting. Uh, Gallegos is just jumping up draft boards. And I, I agree the talent's good and all. I just don't understand the, the love to be that much. You know, you still have a pretty crowded bullpen. There are a lot of guys that can come into play. Jordan Hicks is doing two 30-pitch bullpen sessions a week now. He keeps ramping it up more and more. There's a chance he'll be ready to return to, to game action sometime mid-July, late July or so, and be able to ramp it up. Are, are you buying into Jordan Hicks being a, a save contender this year? Are you a Gallegos fan? How do you view that Cardinals bullpen? Yeah, and I think um, I think Gallegos is going to get like the first nod at it, um, but I could see – you know, at the rate that Hicks is progressing, 30-pitch bullpens twice a week, I, you know, you, he, I could see him like mid-July to end of July maybe being back in a high-leverage role, but he's going to have to prove it. Um, things, you know, it's never easy to come back um, from Tommy John, you know, within a year and, and be back to your true self. And so I just don't see him getting stretched out very much in the high leverage situations um, until he proves that he can still command his pitches as well as he did, um, you know, in 2018. And so if he can consistently locate, locate the zone, continue to command his pitches, um, live lower in the zone with the sinker. Um, I, I could see, you know, I could see him closing games maybe by, by the end of July, but I see for the whole entire bullpen Cardinals bullpen. Um, I see more of a closer by committee, um, you know, being employed uh, until one clear front runner proves himself. And, and obviously we want that to be Hicks and it should be Hicks um, based on skill set alone um, and his track record. But you just you never know how someone's going to respond to Tommy John. Um, so, uh, you know, I hope he responds well to it and he's progressing very well. So but I see somewhat of a closer by committee, maybe not, you know, strictly closer by committee, but I think they're going to roll that way. Um, you know, until they have a clear front runner in the, in the closing role. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that's why, as much as I think Gallegos is a very solid arm, I think Hicks will get some of his once he becomes healthy. I think there's other options there in the bullpen. Um, Gallegos could be the guy. I just at the price that he's you're having to take him at it. It's hard for me to run that direction and draft him. So I'm with you on that one. Uh, last bit of news here: Joey Gallo had some interesting quotes come out this week about hitting in the new uh, Rangers ballpark there. We know it's a, it's in this closed stadium, a dome, so it's going to be a little more climate controlled, which we already kind of speculating would help pitching a little bit. Um, we've seen the overlays of the new ballpark over the old ballpark. Pretty similar, nothing too crazy. Like they're still, you know, a little short in certain spots. But overall, not bad. You'd think Gallo would still be fine. But Gallo said that ballpark's playing large, really large. Like it's going to be really good for the pitching a, how much are you taking this into consideration? And B, if you are taking it in a, a pretty good consideration, how is that changing your look on Rangers players? I'm not really taking that into much consideration. Um, I feel like he's over-exaggerating a little bit, but like obviously I could say that while I sit here. Um, and he's, you know, he's taking BP and Globe Life Park, so they're obviously, you know, I'll take his word for it. But um, as far as the ballpark goes, 
yeah, it didn't really change much. Like it's actually shorter in the corners, like shorter porches in the corners. And then like the, you know, right center to left center is a little bit deeper and center fields now from 400. It's now at 407. So I can see how he, he, he's saying that it's playing deeper um, as a hitter. I guess I could see that. Um, but he, he displayed the pull rate. Um, and you, I, we all know how hard Joey Gallo hits the ball. Like I don't need to reiterate and go through his stack ass page and talk about, you know, why Joey Gallo is the hitter he is, but he displayed the pull rate to be able to optimize his approach um, for this new park. Like they pulled, they pulled the corners in like, you know, last year limited sample size, obviously, but over 50% pull rate. Like if he's pulling the ball that hard and in the air, um, you know, he has all the things contributing to, to, um, you know, uh, possibly having a greater level of success in this type of park. If, if he can just keep pulling the ball, hit it hard in the air, um, then he's going to be, he's going to have a monster season in this new park. And, um, I, you know, I, I take it with a grain of salt, like everything that these major league guys say right now, um, in a non-competitive environment, I have to take with a grain of salt until they are officially in a competitive environment. No, that's fair. That's very fair. Cause that's why I was kind of confused when, I saw the dimensions and I'm thinking, I know it's indoors, but come on, like Joey Gallo can hit it out of Yellowstone sometimes. What, what are we, <laughs> what are we really concerned about here? It kind of surprised me. I was already liking, you know, Lance Lynn and maybe some Jordan Lyles gambles and some others pitching in that ballpark. It's definitely should be on paper, a better pitching environment being indoors, but still mm-hmm. I don't see the dimensions crushing the hitters unless you know, they're going chase field on us and using a humidor in this stadium and really suffocating things. But we haven't heard any of that yet. So I'm real curious. Yeah, it's still a hitter friendly park. Like, in my opinion, all the park factors point towards both sides of the plate, both types of hitters, you know, being above average and as far as park factors go. And so I think he just needs to channel, you know, his, his inner Renato Nunez and just keep <laughs> cranking that ball to left field. Um, pulling it in the air, just hitting, doing, doing what he does. And I think he's going to be just fine. I think it's just a, you know, a quick over, overreaction uh, to the new park, in my opinion. No doubt about it. Uh, let's talk about a couple of players that you've broken down over the last, you know, a couple of months uh, pitching wise, because they're, they're interesting pitchers that are kind of fringy. Some people really like to draft them. Some, some are kind of worried because of maybe playing time or whatever, um, they're going later in drafts, so they're extreme value picks. Uh, let's start with one, Ryan Yarborough. We saw Yanni Chirinos last year kind of get the uh, the opener tag taken off of him. They let him roll a little bit. This year, everyone's speculating Yarborough is going to get to start rolling out there, not worrying about the opener, because we saw some really strong signs of life when he wasn't uh, being used in the opener role. Still threw 141 innings last year. He's or if you if you put AAA with it, almost 170 innings. So he, he's he's good to go in the grand scheme of things. Not a major strikeout guy in the majors, but has shown strikeout ability in the minors. What have you seen with a guy like Yarborough, and are you uh, interested in him come draft season? Yeah, he's um, he's taken some you know some major strides forward, and just in over a course of of two seasons, um, and and kind of the biggest stride that I would say that he's made um, is reducing you know his walk rate. So the amount of walks that he's issuing per nine innings, I think, went from like three down to to one um so issuing less free passes um right off the bat is 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 an immediate contributor to to why he had so much success in 2019 and especially at limiting hard contact so what i love the most about yarborough 
um, and I, I nicknamed him in my my deep dive article on him for SB Stream. I nicknamed him uh, the suppressor. Um, he's um, you know hundred literally one hundredth percentile top of the league um, for average exit velocity, exit velocity allowed, and he's top four percent in the league uh, for hard hit allowed so hard hard hit rate. Um, so I mean, any way you look at it, he is becoming um an absolute master at uh, limiting hard contact and part of that comes to just being an intelligent pitcher and understanding what he can do and what what he can't do and maybe what he was doing wrong um in 2018 and, and he did you know he made very good strides to correct that and um one of the uh, yeah and another stride that he made i guess was um really in bumping bumping up his cutter usage so he pretty much replaced any sort of uh, you know, straight uh, over the top fastball, uh, whether four seam, two seam, he replaced it with the cutter. So that's his primary pitch. Um, he's been using the changeup a little bit more, but uh, his location with the changeup, uh, being able to command that pitch also really contributed to his success in 2019. Um, you know, he had a negative four PVAL on that changeup. Uh, I understand that's a very relative metric and we have to take it you know, the grain of salt, not put too much stock into it, but negative four PVAL to an 11 PVAL in one season. I mean, that is a drastic change. That's a drastic improvement um, for one pitch uh, for, for, a, for a guy like this who throws under 90 miles an hour, like over 80% of the time, it seems like. Um, and so he's just really good at hammering the shadow zone. Um, you get negative 23 uh, run run value uh, as far as swings go. So if you take a look at his swing take profile on baseball savant, uh, he's literally one of the best pitchers in the league at owning the shadow zone and getting weak contact and taking away offensive runs um, in that particular zone of the plate. And so, you know, his biggest knock is still throwing the sinker uh, sinker sucks. It's just like, it's just like Pablo Lopez's. Um, it's just a pitch that I think he needs to deprecate and start working that curveball in. Uh, a little bit more. Um, but yeah, he's got a profile. Uh, you take a look at some of his batted ball statistics. Like um, I compared him to Shane Bieber in this article, like similar, similar amounts of batted ball events. Um, you know, Babbitt is within like 30 points ground ball rate. Uh, not barely goes to Bieber. Uh, Ryan Yarbrough's got a, a better barrel rate. Uh, he allows less solid contact. Uh, he induces more weak contact and he has a lower home run to fly ball line drive ratio. So, uh, yeah, I've been all in on Yarbrough, a uh, long story short, <laughs> this, this season. I, I love the fact you compared him to Shane Bieber because I've been the anti Bieber guy for like, since he's been around and I've, <laughs> I've, I've had to eat a lot of a uh, crow so far, but Bieber pitches to too much contact. Eventually that just can't continue. I just, I, I don't know. I just, I, I get blown away by it. Uh, a couple things you mentioned there, and maybe you can clarify this for the listeners. Can you explain a little more what the shadow zone is so they know? Like, I know what you're talking about on Baseball Savant, but maybe some of the listeners don't. Right. And so it's it's actually it's kind of hard to explain without a visual, Yeah, okay. um, you know, looking at it. But it's it's so imagine the outline of the strike zone, like the, the K zone that they show on, you know, Fox when you're watching an MLB game. So it's basically if you, you know, if you would go a few inches inside the zone and then a few inches outside the zone on either side, you're, you're creating like a buffer 
around the the outer strike zone, the delineation of the strike zone, and that's the shadow zone. So basically, living on the edge of the plate, um, edge percentage, you know, edge rate is another good metric uh, that kind of captures a pitcher's ability to live in this zone. Um, but you know, you don't want to live in the heart of the zone, right? That's where you get absolutely eaten up um, by hitters. So he's doing a really good job of staying around the plate instead of over the plate. And that was, that was another, you know, that's another big reason that, that he had the success he did just straight commandability of his pitches. He's making, he's making really good strides and he's becoming an intelligent pitcher. Yeah. If he's throwing nineties and below most of the time, he's going to definitely have to avoid the, the meat of the plate there. He sounds kind of Tom Glavin-esque. Paint the corners, uh, make it work from there. You can have quite the career doing that. And that's what Bieber's done, and you've seen some others uh, make that work as well. I know Robbie Ray throws harder than Yarborough, but he tries to paint so much he gets himself in trouble by walking, guys. If if he could just walk a little fewer, Robbie Ray could be something quite interesting as well. But I, I love the Yarborough take. I've, I've been a big fan of his, and it, it makes a lot of sense. Thinking about the games he kind of blew up in, he had a lot of walks. He kind of had to come into the zone more got a little ugly when he was executing like you're talking about. He can be very, very fierce. And like I know one of the concerns that a lot of people have with this raised rotation is as deep as it is, and that's why they've had the opener so many times, like Morton's not going anywhere. Snell, that shoulder injury doesn't make me feel great, I'll be honest. You have Glass now, who's kind of been injury prone also. But then you got Trinos and Yarborough. We can't forget Brendan McKay sitting around there. Do you get concerned at all with McKay creeping in there and and messing with Yarborough, or do you think he'll maybe overtake somebody else? Yeah, and that's that's a real interesting point to bring up. And if I'm if I remember correctly, didn't Charlie Morton announce that he was going to retire after this season? I think he's talked about it. I don't know if anything's official yet, but I know okay. he's talk- I know I know when he signed the two year deal with the Rays, he said this was probably his last two years. But I don't know okay. if he's made anything official yet. All right. Yeah, that's. That's understandable then. I, um, yeah, I was going to kind of go the direction that potentially um, McKay could find his way into more of like an opening role, you know, you know, sort of what like uh, Chirinos and uh, I guess not so much Yarbrough, but all the other pitchers that, that the Rays house. Um, so I, I could see McKay taking on that kind of role, kind of like a utility pitcher role, if that makes any sense. Oh yeah. Um, With the Rays, it then, definitely does. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, good. And then, so if Morton were to retire this season or retire after next season, I'm assuming he's going to want to get another full season in. Um, that's where, uh, you know, I see McKay kind of getting his opportunity to solidify an actual rotation spot. And, you know, unfortunately, it might not come uh, along for for a year or two for him. Um, but if he can prove his performance, um, you know, and not falter at the major league level whenever he is given the opportunity, then he will find his way into the rotation um, a lot quicker. And, he, you know, you never know. Um, I like Chirinos personally, but it, who knows if that, you know, that type, that style of pitching and if his statistics are sustainable um, over, you know, the next couple of years. So I, it's a really intriguing situation that they have uh, in Tampa Bay. And I, I, I really do not know how to handle it, to be honest with you. It's tough because like the, all those pitchers are, that are already in the rotation or slated to be on the rotation are very good. Like Yarbrough, like we talked about, I would, I love him. I'd still draft him. Like I agree with everything you said. Go for it. And you know, if with this maybe shortened season, maybe double hitters, I don't think they'll be necessary if things start early July and they and they try to only play eighty to one hundred games and, and finish the season in late October. I think they'll be fine. But you got McKay, you got Honeywell, Banda's still there, Trevor Richards is there. 
they have an interesting slew of starters, so they might have to bring up a six starter. Who knows what they'll do? But it's definitely something to keep in mind uh, as maybe we get towards some real baseball. Let's look at the St. Louis Cardinals now. And this is a pitcher that we saw have some big strides at times last year and in some kind of questionable situations. Right now, he's not even slated to be in the starting five. The Cardinals have Flaherty, Carlos Martinez, Dakota Hudson, who I could do without. Adam Wainwright, he was better than people thought last year. Miles Mikolas, another pitch-to-contact guy. So they have an interesting bullpen. Mikolas is supposed to be healthy now by the start of the season. But the guy you were writing about, and he had his flashes, like I said, is Daniel Ponce de Leon. Like they still have Alex Reyes. They have Genesis Cabrera, Austin Gomber, other guys we've seen. But de Leon we've seen do some pretty strong work. What is it you saw digging in on Daniel Ponce de Leon? Yeah, so I'm not completely – through with this article and I'm still finding very intriguing things as I go along. Um, but one, uh, you know, one thing to just highlight, not even statistical or anything with Ponce alone is just his, you know, his resilience, um, as an individual, because, you know, in, uh, I can't remember which year it was, I think it was 2017. Yep. He was struck in the face and the right temple actually by Victor Caratini, uh, line drive hit by Victor Caratini. And so he had to be, you know, rushed to the hospital. He had emergency surgery. Uh, he was, he was bleeding from his brain and he wasn't able to return to baseball, um, for the rest of, of 2017. And so he was then, he, he took the off season, he recovered, he came back stronger, um, started to throw, he got invited to spring training in 2018. And then he made his, uh, MLB debut on July 23rd, 2018. And this is where I mean, honestly, he caught my eye from this very first start. He spun a no-hit bid, seven seven shutout inning bid against the Reds. Um, you know, he, he only put up three Ks. He walked three guys, but he allowed no hits, no runs. Um, and that's just a testament to his ability uh, as a very, you know, smart pitcher, up-and-coming pitcher. He's a very intelligent guy. He's, he's had many stops in his career, um, not in the minor league level, but, you know, he's been drafted since 2010. Like, he got drafted in 2010. 2012, 2013, and then things finally went right, and he was able to get picked up out of Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Florida um, by the Cardinals, and then, and so he's displayed positive linear growth, uh, you know, across each level of pro ball that he's participated in, and that's kind of one of the big things that I've seen with Ponce de Leon, and I, I mean, not even getting into the stats yet or anything, um, but he's, you know, from year to year, he's noticeably um, become a better pitcher. And so, you know, 96 percentile for hard hit rate. Um, so he's up there with Yarborough in that category. Um, you know, 86 percentile for XBA, not a huge strikeout guy, um, but he's got, you know, and, and his motive is, you know, working the changeup lower in the zone and working the fastball up in the zone. And so he's gotten in trouble um, when he does miss with that fastball. He just hangs it over the middle of the plate too much. And you might see a common theme here. And I mean, uh, the players that I'm talking about, Ryan Yarbrough, uh, Daniel Ponce de Leon, and then Pablo Lopez being the next one, uh, if we get to him even, um, you know, pretty much fastball changeup guys. And um, these are the type of pitchers that, that I really like to take a lot of stock into or put a lot of stock into. Um, if I'm seeing linear growth from year to year with these two pitches, because it just takes a fundamental and advanced understanding as a pitcher to be able to live on a fastball and a changeup by changing the eye level of the hitter going from high to low, high to low, high to low, and then maybe, you know, popping in a curveball in there every once in a while uh, or a fourth pitch. And so 
Uh, Ponce de Leon's just thrown a, he's he's shown an uh, uh, an incredible amount of resilience and ability to to learn and progress his his skill set. Um, and I, I was looking for him to be a you know a deep sleeper and provide a lot of value this season, whether he's in a long relief role in the bullpen or in the starting rotation. Um, you know his 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 lines speak for themselves, and his Statcast page is is painted red. So. Yeah, no, he's a very intriguing option. The Cardinals just have so many pitchers. He's free in drafts after pick 360, so uh, you might not even have to draft him. Just keep him on your radar. I think he's a really interesting guy to see how things play out. If he gets a shot, could be sneaky good. And it is, it is interesting that you mentioned you like these fastball change-up guys because it's just the art of pitching. You, you know, They're not, they're not going to overpower him. They have to be creative. Like you said, change eye levels, do different things like that. Um, you know, you watch – Alex Fast and Pitcher List with their gifts every night. Um, I woke up to <laughs> I woke up to some KBO um, videos and gifts from Alex Fast on Aaron Brooks's start last night, and he was just going like googling about uh, googly eyed about Aaron Brooks's changeup. The way he was just <laughs> locating it like down and away to batters and stuff. He was just having a field day because that's pitching. That is the art of pitching. It's not going up there and seeing if I can throw it past you. It's right. making a guy feel uncomfortable because. You know, it's like a game of chess. The uh, art of pitching is to upset the batter's timing, basically. And that's fastball changeup at its finest. So very interesting the way you talk about that. And let's go to the third guy here, Pablo Lopez, a young guy, 24 years old, projected to be fourth in this Marlins rotation. You mentioned the fastball changeup. It's been very well established. Uh, Last year he threw about 125, 130 innings between all levels of the minors and the bigs. Had some ups and downs, as you'd expect, from a young arm but showed a lot of positive things. Like there's a lot of like, uh Oh, but he's young and there's some positives as well. What did you, what did that you saw that you liked with Pablo Lopez? Right. And uh, yeah, just to go along with the running theme, uh, Pablo Lopez, you know, his biggest issue was again, uh, like the other guys just misusing the fastball, throwing it too often and throwing it over the plate way too often, the heart of the plate, not the shadow zone. So this is where I discern, you know, the abilities that uh, Ryan Yarbrough possesses to get weak contact. And then Pablo Lopez, like Pablo Lopez could turn into a Ryan Yarbrough, a left hand or a right handed Ryan Yarbrough, essentially. Um, and it's it's uh, he has a bright future ahead of him if he's able to be as smart as Yarbrough and acknowledge those changes. And I'm hoping that or acknowledge the changes that he needs to make. Um, and I'm hoping that, you know, the new philosophies down in Miami, um, the new ownership, uh, you got a, a new analytical team in there, some new coaches, you know, I'm hoping that they're able to work with him and develop, uh, that change up even further. And, and kind of the guy that I've compared, um, Lopez to, and I did in the article, I don't have the article up right now. I can't find it for some reason, but, um, I, I compared him directly to Chris Paddock. Um, and, and some people That's may fall praise. off. Yeah. Yeah. And some people may, you know, fall off their chairs, uh, hearing me say that, but um, you know, when you get down to the nitty gritty, they pitch almost identically when it comes to uh, their pitch mixes, when they use certain pitches. Uh, I think Lopez just uses the fastball a little bit too often and he gets, you know, he gets behind in the count. So the other major difference between Lopez and Yarbrough, Yarbrough is elite at getting ahead in the count and staying ahead in the count and not falling behind where Lopez has displayed a little bit more of a track record to, not be able to get ahead and he's always working from behind so you flip the script and 
Lopez then I could see becoming more of a Yarbrough type, maybe not as good of, you know, good at his inducing uh, weak contact as, as Yarbrough is since he's, you know, top one or two in the league at that. Um, but Pablo Lopez possesses a lot of the same skill set that, uh, that, that Yarbrough does. And if he just can, you know, he gets the right coaching, uh, uses the pitches the right way, adds a little bit of movement um, on those pitches, then he's going to be, you know, he's one of my other uh, definitely deep sleepers. And I wrote that article, I think back in late February um, and I was all over him and I've had him in dynasty leagues since, since dynasty league since, uh, since the end of 2017 or the end of 2018. So, um, you know, I've been all over Pablo Lopez and if he can just learn to drop the sinker much like Yarbrough um, and maybe learn that slider from his boy, Eliza Hernandez over there. Um, nice. That would be awesome. I think that's something that he should absolutely tinker with adding, adding a new third pitch. Cause we, we've all seen it and not many analysts, you know, I've talked to like sinkers and like sinker mm-hmm. baller pitchers. Yeah, exactly. Like Montes, maybe be the one guy that, that you can take, you know, at his value and, and get something more out of him uh, being a sinker baller. But yeah, uh, you know, he's, he's comparable to Paddock and he's comparable to Jake Odorizzi in terms of how he pitches and if he just harnesses his ability his athletic ability i mean he's got sneaky velocity you know he's some sometimes getting up 95 96 so if he uses it more in the shadow zone like yarborough was instead of just hanging everything over the heart of the plate um pablo lopez is going to be shooting up draft boards next season a couple things right there you had the sinker ball it's only effective if it's like a heavy sinker like the max freeds of the world the alcantaras the montas occasionally we saw Steven Matz do it in the second half last year, but it's hard because if it's not locating right, it's a batting practice fastball. So right. that gets in a lot of trouble. And then a couple of things you mentioned there with Lopez, which is very, it kind of goes back to the Yarborough. Like you said, you know, if you're going fastball changeup, you got to be able to locate it and you got to stay ahead of the count because if you're not overpowering guys and they know to expect something in the zone, they're going to tee off on you. It's very simple. These, these professional athletes, they know what they're doing. They can all hit a fastball. So um, that, yeah, that's a one, very good point. Right. And one other positive, yeah, just with, with Lopez is like, it is 100% the, his inability to locate the four seamer in every count and he's leaving the curveball over the plate. Um, but the changeup, you know, if you take a look at his heat maps, his contour maps, like he's keeping the changeup low in the zone, down in the shadow zone. If you watch any strikeout videos of him using that changeup, it's, it's absolutely beautiful and it is very comparable to Chris Paddock and I'm just I'm gonna leave it there and hope for the best <laughs> no I, I, and that's good though because it, it's one of those if he can figure out how to set up the changeup if it's that filthy he'll get guys chasing it all over the place exactly it's just, it's just get to it like you're saying and he's 24 years old there's a lot right. of time to figure this out like you said if it's establishing a third pitch to help him out better control of the fastball maybe he goes to a two-seamer instead of a four-seamer and that just it's easier to locate and get in for a strike. And sometimes it's as simple as just get the first pitch over for a strike and see where it goes. Little things like that. I haven't looked deep into Pablo Lopez, but I'm curious on kind of his counts and those kind of things on, on what he does. By the sounds of it, you're saying he gets behind a lot. So that's never good no matter who you are. So that'll be interesting to see because it's not like Yarborough who throws 90 and has to be really clutch. If uh, Lopez still throws 95-96, that chained up's even filthier. So exactly. you can do a lot of damage with that. And, uh, you know, Lopez going around pick 348 right now, right ahead of Spencer Turnbull, who people are big on, uh, right behind Yusei Kikuchi, M- Michael Pineda, Anibal Sanchez. 
lot of interesting names back here that guys are taking gambles on. Is Pablo Lopez kind of your guy at this point of the draft? Yep, 100% in that spot. Of all the guys that, that you just named, yeah, I'm taking Lopez. Okay, and then you mentioned his name, so we're going to talk about him for a second. It is Chris Paddock, and you don't have to compare him to Lopez anymore. That's fine because I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna knock you. I was just on board with comparing Bieber to Yarborough, so I'm cool with getting crazy. I got no problem with that at all. Be bold and stand by your thoughts. It's the beauty of fantasy baseball. We all have opinions, so that that's the beauty of it. Chris Paddock, my opinion on Chris Paddock, he's drafted too high. That's what I've I've put my flag on that one since day one. He's the 15th pitcher on the board. I haven't looked at my rankings lately, but. I, he might be in my top 30 pitchers still. I don't remember. He's close to 30 to 35 at one point. I, I like him. I think he needs more than the fastball changeup because similar to Lopez, when he gets behind, it gets ugly. He just yep. get, he's got a little more control at this point in his career than Lopez does. But that's kind of the that's how close they are together in reality, but they're not. That's the crazy part. What's your thoughts on Chris Paddock? Because he's supposedly working on a third pitch. We haven't seen it, obviously. That'll help tremendously. But for me, I still can't take him as the 15th pitcher around pick 50. Right, and I'm I'm right there with you. I like I love Chris Paddock, and and as you can probably tell by all the pitchers I've talked about being fastball changeup guys, like I love, you know, I love his mindset, and I love the way that he attacks hitters, and he's he's absolutely fearless on the mound. He's not afraid to challenge hitters, um, and so that's what I do like about Paddock. And if he does develop that third pitch, then he could really take the next step forward, but I'm not like you, I'm not willing to take him at that high of a price until he has proven to be more than a one or two pitch pitcher. Um, and so I, I I'm right there with Paddock. Um, there's not much else to say. It's just a price thing. It's, it's a hundred percent a price thing for me. Um, you know, a, a round or two later, like I would even take him there, but I just find myself reaching or taking, um, you know, more higher floor, uh, offensive parts at that part of the draft to construct my team than trying to take, you know, a flyer on, on a guy that, you know, obviously had a lot of success with his two pitches, but um, you know, it is, he still is extremely young and there certainly will be some growing pains. I, I think. No, I'm with you. And, he, and another thing is he just doesn't go deep in the games often enough for me at that point in the draft. It's just one of those things like Lucas mm-hmm. Giolito's going right around him. You Darvish, who I love, is going right after him. Or there's all those bats, like you said. So it's just a price thing. And that's, as silly as it sounds, that's how a lot of drafts go. You have your player pool, the guys you want. That's why when you do the end of the draft season, you have your guys on your team. It's because it's just certain parts of the draft, these are the guys you're targeting. That's why they're fun exercises. I've done many times on different podcasts. It's just a fun exercise to kind of get you used to the player pool. And Chris Paddock, I just want to get your thoughts on that because it seems like people either are in love with Chris Paddock and he's going too late, or there's guys like you and me where he's going too early. So it's just a not, not there's not many that say that's the perfect price. So very interesting there. Um, last thing we'll hit on on this episode, and I'm really curious to get kind of your thoughts on this. You wrote an article for uh, Prospects 365, great great website over there. Um, you wrote an article on Statcast uh, relationship between swing and miss percentage. And XBA, and I've talked to some other people doing research on, uh, I believe it was Dan Richards from PitcherList, uh, to swing, not to swing. He's had some articles on that, and now you can help predict batting average and whatnot. What did your work find out that you saw with swinging miss percentage and X batting average? Yeah, and so with this, um, you know, it was is really purely exploratory because, um, you know, it's an intuitive relationship for anyone 
who has spent time around the game of baseball just knows the game of baseball. Um, you know, you would think that the more swings and misses that a pitcher induces, um, you know, uh, on a batter, um, then you would expect to see their, you would, you know, you would expect to see their expected batting average, um, drop. And so that's just like, you know, I, I've, I've played baseball my entire life. I've been around, um, it at a, at a pretty elite level, and um, it's just common sense. Like the more swings and misses a pitcher gets, uh, the lower the batting average that that you can expect the hitters to have. And so I just kind of ran with that and just wanted to. I looked into the Statcast search tool, so I, I can't remember the exact parameters. I think it was like a thousand pitch minimum. Um, and then I was looking into the the year to year relationship between uh, swing and miss percentage and uh, XBA, and so it was actually fairly strong. And so like the three year average is like 0.61, uh, I believe for for the correlation there. Um, and so, and then what I wanted to do even further was break it down into its partials. So take a look at um, you know in zone swing and miss percentage versus out of zone swing and miss percentage and so which one kind of correlated the best with with expected batting average and and what was really interesting is that um, well in zone swing and miss percentage had had that higher correlation than out of zone swing swing and miss percentage um, but what was what was interesting is that the the correlation between regular batting average and swing and miss percentage was literally almost non-existent. It was like 0.21, I believe. Um, and, and so there being a substantially stronger relationship between uh, swing and miss percentage and XBA versus BA um, just really piqued my interest. And I haven't, I haven't had the time, unfortunately, to, to go deeper into it and even look at it from maybe even an offensive standpoint. Um, but, but I was happy with finding out that, um, in zone swing and miss percentage does have a higher correlation with XBA than out of zone swing and miss percentage. So what I take away from that potentially is a is is a, a useful relationship and a useful tool uh, when targeting pitchers for for next year's roto draft. So average obviously is an offensive category in these leagues, um, but uh, you know pitchers uh, if they're going to have a lower ERA, they're typically going to allow a lower average, and so you can kind of directly you know, translate this across offense and defense. But um, so if you're, if you're looking into pitchers that, uh, you know, if you're looking for pitchers for next season um, that you want to find value on and take them, um, you know, at a spot in the draft that maybe other people aren't willing to take them at, um, you can look into whether they're making strides, positive strides um, with their swing and miss percentage. And specifically, in zone swing and miss percentage. So, so if a pitcher increases his in zone, his ability to gain in zone swings and misses um, throughout the course of a season, um, you can expect, given this relationship that I quantified, to see their XBA um, decrease with that uh, with that increase. So, um, that was kind of a hodgepodge way of explaining um, um, this to you, um, but. I guess, yeah, you could read a little bit more about it in the text. It's a little more specific, but um, it's so, I guess, just to highlight a couple guys. Um, so well, real quick, real quick, I want to ask you a couple things here. Um, okay, sorry about that. Uh, no, it's fine. I think it's it's really a cool tool mm-hmm. because, like I said, when I talked to Dan Richards, it was more offensively based. So this is a good way to look at uh, the pitcher side of it, and it really digs in. Uh, usually when most people talk X batting average, we're not worried about the pitcher, but it makes a lot of sense. So that's why 
it's a really interesting tool to utilize to maybe find some outliers. Um, you, you've showed charts from like 17, 18, and 19. Obviously, you have the 20 in here. Are you, um, are you finding that there's some pretty good stickiness in this relationship between end zone swing and miss and uh, end zone swing and miss percentage and XPA that we can kind of use as a year-to-year tool? Or do you need to do some more work on that? I need to do some more work on that. Okay. And that's where, yeah, this introductory article kind of touched on it. Um, I only did like the three-year average correlation for swing and miss percentage as a whole with XBA. Gotcha. So now gotcha. I need to go a whole nother level deeper and do an entire article on end zone swing and miss percentage in XBA and, and highlight more more on that relationship. Yep. Okay, gotcha. Now, um, you, you tweet in your article, you have some of your tweets that you mentioned. So I'm gonna let you go there because I'm pretty sure that's where you're headed now with some of these guys that stand out, what are some of the guys that you could maybe look to target that stood out to you in doing this research? Yeah. And so as far as end zone swing and miss percentage goes, um, you know, in the tweet that I sent out, like some of the leader, obviously uh, Garrett Cole at the top, um, absolutely elite at getting any sort of end zone swing and miss on any pitch. Um, and then you have Verlander Giolito being at number three, there is, uh, kind of a confirmation piece for me mm-hmm. um you know uh, people are kind of all or uh, analysts are kind of all over the place on giolito right now like they don't know whether to believe um you know the the strides in his mechanics uh, you know whether it's going to translate from year to year is, is he going to be able to stay on the field and and you know stay off the il um and so when I look into Giolito, I, I see this, you know, he's number three on this chart behind Cole and Verlander. And so given the research that I did, that in zone swing and miss percentage, you know, correlates a little bit better with XBA than out of zone swing percentage. And so for me, that was just a confirmation that Giolito uh, did make the elite strides that he needed to. And if he even increases this, um, you know, his in zone swing and miss percentage just a little bit, like he is going to remain one of the best pitchers, one of the best right-handed pitchers in baseball, um, simply because he has the stuff to get swings and misses in the zone. Um, and then just keep moving on just real quick. Uh, Scherzer's after him. Uh, Luis Castillo, not a huge surprise there. Gets Talk a lot a of fastball changeup guy right there. Yep, he is. <laughs> he's the top one. He is. He is the model for all yep. of the other fastball changeup guys to try to to strive to be. Um, and so Castillo de Grama, and then Odorizzi, uh, Robbie Ray, Lance Lynn, uh, Kenta Maeda, and Matt Boyd. So those are all. Those are the top ten. Um, starting pitchers in 2019 at forcing in zone swing and misses. Um, and then something that jumped out at me. So we'll go back to the player that you're, you know, you're not, maybe not so high on and, and Shane Bieber. <laughs> um, so something that jumped off the page for me was him being number two on this list behind Garrett Cole. Garrett Cole has a 56.9% out of zone or O swing miss percentage. Bieber has a 55.1 O swing miss percentage. And this is why he was able to do as good as he did last season, essentially. So everyone looks at, you know, his battle, his batted ball profile, those metrics are very problematic. That's why a lot of people are out on him. You know, it's the classic decision of Flaherty over Bieber in these drafts. Um, Most people have gone Flaherty because of that contact profile for Bieber. Um, And maybe they just weren't understanding the whole story, you know? Um, So he's getting an elite level of out of zone, swings and misses and so if he can even just jump up a little bit and increases his in zone swing and miss uh, ability 
and he's he's super young right so like he has time um to make these strides to learn i believe in cleveland i believe in their their pitching uh, coaches and their analytics team what they do with pitchers they do a wonderful job over there um and so if Bieber finds himself on the leaderboard for end zone swings and misses, you're going to be looking at one of the best pitchers in the AL uh, in the next, you know, one, two, three years, in my opinion. Um, so then, so then I'm going to have to buy in. Is what you're saying? That's going to be tough for me to really backpedal on that one. Wouldn't be the first time. Wouldn't be the first time I've done that. But that'd be quite the uh, you know 180 on a situation. So. We'll wait and see there. Um, what what yeah, other guys stood out to you? It's kind of a wait and see, definitely. Um, and it's just, yeah, you, you have to decide if you're willing to take that plunge or not. Um, and some leagues I have, some leagues I haven't. Um, so, and then following him, Patrick Corbin, no surprise there. Um, Herman Marquez, not very surprising, but somewhat surprising. Um, I really like to see him on this list. And I'd like to see him on, you know, the, the end zone swing and miss percentage leaderboard as well. Um, but this is a direct testament to, to what Marquez has been able to do over the past few years. And then again, at number five, Luis Castillo, Mm -hmm. um, you know, he's right in the middle on both of these leaderboards, just absolutely confirms that he is, he is elite. Um, and he's going to be an ace for years to come in my opinion. And then he's followed by Charlie Morton, Trevor Bauer, um, John Gray, somewhat surprising as well so you got two rockies pitchers on here getting the most the the majority of their swings and misses are out of the zone and so that's yeah you can see them somewhat optimizing their approach to facing hitters um for their home park right like you don't want to throw in the zone when you're playing in coors field um so there i i somewhat expected their out of zone swing and miss percentages to be a little bit higher but to see them both on this leaderboard is great uh, and then Matthew Boyd shows up on both leaderboards as well. Um, so that's that's another fringe guy uh, that everyone likes talking about too. So so we got some interesting guys on both boards. And and in my opinion, if you find yourself on both of these leaderboards, then, um, you know, you are the elite of the elite, the Garrett Coles, um, you know, the, the Patrick Corbins, the Lucas Giolitos, uh, Luis Castillo, those guys. And so um, that's kind of what this, this article and this research helped me confirm is just guys that I, you know, I previously was really in on, but had some questions about. And these are just some extra tools to put in the toolbox uh, when assessing players like this. And can really, you know, it could be a league winner. No, I like it. I'm always in for uh, new tools to use, new ways to use the stats that we have, the metrics, and like you use zones, zone swing and then O swing together like this to kind of get an idea on who's who's uh, dominating per se compared to just pitching well type situation. Right. I think it's it's a really good way to look into it because. I've said it many uh, many times on different shows. I I'm, I'm a Giants fan, and that's been rough of late, but I can't complain. <laughs> and um, Luis Castillo faced them in San Francisco last year, and it was one of the more dominating things I've ever seen. Like the Giants lineup's not great; it's like barely a four A lineup if you want to give it that. It's probably more a triple A <laughs> lineup at times. And if Castillo, I think he walked like seven, eight guys, maybe more. It was ridiculous, <laughs> but he struck out double digits. Went six innings. He threw a hundred and something pitches. So they had to yank him. But they couldn't touch him. Like, it was filthy. They were chasing the change up everywhere or just staring at it, go right over the plate. It was some of the most filthy stuff I have ever seen. If he could just control it a little more, it'd be nuts. But part of his wildness actually helps him at times, which is a weird way. That's why, like, like seeing Robbie Ray on the zone swing, I was talking about him earlier. If he could just 
not be painting as much, I think he could be just ridiculously effective because he's obviously not getting the out-of-zone swings uh, at the same type of level as the zone swings. So that's an intriguing one. Um, Odorizzi on the list, as you mentioned, Pablo Lopez is kind of a, a link to Odorizzi. That's a, a good thing to to take a, a gander at there. But yeah, the Giolito confirmation, that's a guy that I believe in the talent. I guess I just, I'm one of those guys that I saw so much bad for so long. I don't not like him like I don't like Bieber, but I haven't been finding myself going to him because I want to see a little more at that price range. Like I mentioned earlier, I'd probably you Darvish or take a batter at that time. So it's tricky for me. But like you said, there's some people that just love Lucas Giolito. And these these charts definitely uh, showcase that situation. So something to definitely dig in on some more. I appreciate uh, looking at this and chatting about it because I I tell people all the time, like I'm, I, I every day, every year, I keep becoming more and more analytically focused where I used to just like I play baseball my whole life too. Like I just <laughs> see the ball. I see how guys play, streakiness. I used to be that guy, the field guy. Now I'm trying to to add analytics to the mix. And so when I see good articles, I, I bookmark them for later and I go, eventually I want to have that guy on the show. And that's where all this goes into so we can have a, a conversation on it. Um, maybe one last thing on this article. Obviously you said you're going to dig in more on it. Um, what would you want to gain as the next step in utilizing this? What I'd like to gain is to be able to achieve, you know, um, to be able to validate these relationships to a level where I can somewhat implement, you know, or create my own model um, when looking year to year uh, for for pitchers that are making strides in these particular uh, statistical categories. So in zone swing and miss percentage, out of zone swing and miss percentage, which ones they're they're moving forward in, and which ones they're they might be, you know, uh, regressing in. And so obviously um, um, you'd have to, I have to, it's going to be a crazy process. You have to come up with like a little bit of a weighting factor um, when you do the analysis. And so like, like I told you um, the, the relationship between in zone swing and miss percentage is stronger with XBA than out of zone swing and miss percentage was. So essentially, you know, finding the correct weight to assign um, to to end zone swing and miss percentage to to show and portray its importance um, over out of zone swing and miss percentage. I'm not saying out of zone swing and miss percentage isn't important at all. Like it is absolutely paramount that that elite pitchers get um, you know swings and misses on pitches out of the zone. But as far as the value behind both of them, my preliminary research points towards pitchers getting end zone swing miss percent uh, swings and misses more often um, is more effective and will benefit. Um, their overall, you know, ERA, all of their ERA indicating stats. And so going further sense. with that. Yeah. Yep. So going it make, further It makes with sense because if, well, really, it makes sense because if you're out of the zone more, your pitch count's going to be up higher. You're throwing balls. If you're in the zone more, you might get hit a little more often, but you're being more effective, if that makes sense. Right. And it, yeah. And it's totally like you get it. Like you played baseball, you know, your entire life, just like I did. It's just, it's an intuitive relationship that that anyone you know who's been around baseball has done fantasy anything like that um understands and it's something we've all talked about um but maybe not have have quantified you know down to down to the decimal of how valuable that relationship really could be and that's that's really what i was trying to to start to achieve with with this article uh in this series awesome well i'm looking forward to the next step on that 
Um, we're not going to go too deep into it. Uh, we did the MLB remix drafts. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that plays out as we <laughs> figure out how to, uh, to do things. Uh, if you can give me one quick answer, because we don't have time to go deep <laughs> into the remix, because um, we could talk forever on different things on this. Overall, what was just your strategy? Because that's kind of the fun part is everyone had different, like some people went prospect heavy, some guys did this and that and the other. What was your strategy going into that? For those that, first off, for those that don't know, the MLB remix, there's 30 of us, OOTP. We draft, we each had a roster. I was the Giants. Uh, Corey was the Brewers. We started from scratch made our roster 26 man active roster plus a, a minor league team. We have 50 players essentially. And OTP is going to simulate the games out for us for three seasons to see who built the best rosters according to the simulation. So how did you go about approaching the Milwaukee Brewers? Yeah. So pretty much, you know, building for, for Miller park. Um, and I understand that obviously they play away games, but most of the games occurring most seasons within Miller park, I just tried to draft a team that was, uh, that that struck a, an equalized balance, you know, between offense and defensive talent um, at each position on the field. So I literally tried to optimize each and every position on the field to get the most um, out of out of those players as far as offense and defense goes. So I didn't really lopside um, any of my picks. Uh, they were really um, focused on on striking that that balance uh, of skill set, and so. I think I may have shocked the world a little bit uh, with a controversial pick in the second round, taking Reese Hoskins. Um, you know, people were kind of expecting to see him fall in more of a kind of like a fantasy type of way uh, that you would see in a fantasy type format. And so, like, like you said, defense matters. Uh, you know, everything uh, matters comes into play in these simulations. And so, you know, Reese Hoskins is a top four first baseman as far as, you know, outs above average is concerned. Um, he's potential for, th- you know, 30 plus home runs if he if he get bounces back on track uh, in Miller Park. So taking into consideration what certain players would be able to do, given that that change of environment. Um, and, and Hoskins was one of those for me. And he just he provides a, a lockdown glove, um, you know, at the at first base. Um, and so. So, yeah, he was he was kind of my flagship pick uh, of uh highlighting my my strategy there i would say um finding that offensive and, def- and defensive balance no and that makes tons of sense like i told uh, i was on the potapalooza talking about uh the remix and i was strictly building mine around at&t park like that was i was going pitching heavy lots of defense like i don't have massive boppers i think uh keston here is probably my projected most home run guy like i just i'm not going for that i'm going for guys that can play a lot of defensive positions like here, I can play first base for me for all I care. Um, he can get on base. We're looking for high average on base guys that can maybe crack 20-ish homers. Like I'm not looking for craziness. Reese Hoskins yeah. fits your ballpark perfectly. Not so much mine. They actually wouldn't have been horrible in mine. Because uh, <laughs> it, it's right-handers play just fine in that ballpark. Lefties, a little different ballgame. But right. um, it'll be fun to see because we don't know how it plays out. I've heard other people that play O2P a lot that every time they sim a season, different things happen. Like – you know, usually what you'd expect to happen will happen like 80% of the time, but sometimes you'll just get the craziest things happen because that's baseball. <laughs> right. Exactly. It is a, uh, it's a statistical mess is what baseball really is. Yes. Um, yeah. So, and you did a phenomenal job building for your park, by the way. Uh, it's a very good team. I'm really curious to see how everyone's, everyone's builds uh, turn out in this simulation. 
Well, I appreciate that. But according to uh, our buddy Hap, I am like 27th overall. So oh, I'm 28th, I guess it's so. Oh, so then we're golden. We're yep. good because yep. uh, it's like those old, you know, fantasy drafts when you get the report card afterwards. No one ever <laughs> wins with an A. No one does. Nope. So we, we, we want that D minus. We're good. Um, <laughs> so I love it. Yeah, it'll be fun to see how it plays out. We're going to start simming that here pretty soon. And there'll probably be some more chatter on the podcast about that. Maybe have you back on and some other guys to, to talk about that. But as we wrap it up, uh, let everybody know where they can find you, plug away the sites you're writing for, the podcasts you're doing, all that good stuff. So, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Corey5Ott, C-O-R-Y-5-O-T-T. And so um, I write for SB Streamer. Um, that's who I got my start with. And so I have those couple of deep dive articles that that we mentioned earlier um, in the podcast about about Ryan Yarbrough and Pablo Lopez. And then I have the the research article into XBA and swimming miss percentage that I did uh, for Prospects 365. So I'm a fairly new writer over there. And I recently uh, also got brought on um, as a as a regular voice on the Turn 2 podcast now with Matt Williams and, and John L at MLB Moving Averages, uh, Mikey Ajetto and Michael Govier. Um, so we, we got our nice little team being built over there. And right now we're doing the 30 team preview uh, series going around to each team in the league and talking about uh, fantasy implications given the shortened season and, and which guys receives potential bumps, which guys receive potential, uh, you know, bumps down in ADP, all that good stuff, how it relates to fantasy. Um, and so, yeah, just keeping busy. Uh, got a pretty big amount announcement coming out soon. Um, that's all Ooh. I can. That's all I can say about that. So you don't want to like I, give a bench with Bubba exclusive? No, I'm kidding. I understand. <laughs> I understand. Maybe next time, Bubba. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I really appreciate you having me on. I, I, I admire your work. I've been a, a really big fan of this podcast for a long time, and to be sitting on here talking to you on it is a surreal experience for me. And I again, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk baseball with you. No problem. I appreciate it. I, uh, like I said, it's been fun getting to, to know you through the draft and through Twitter and everything. And I, I appreciate all the new voices in the industry. So I love having them on and whenever I can. And so I, I'm glad to have you and I, I've enjoyed the conversation. So we'll definitely do it again sometime uh, in the future. So hopefully we'll have some real baseball to talk about when that happens. <laughs> but again, uh, thanks for joining me. It's been an absolute blast. Yes. Thank you for having me. Everybody, this is Bench with Bub, episode 283 with Corey Ott. Catch you guys later. a home policy from American Family Insurance because you'll feel protected no matter how the wind blows. Also, you can keep enjoying the home of your dreams. And our expert agents can help you save up to 23% when you bundle home with auto. Insure carefully, dream fearlessly. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.